You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 235. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you again this week, discussing, among other things, the big news in the world of AI this week. As the CEO of OpenAI, the nonprofit company behind Microsoft backed chat, GPT was ousted only to be hired back by Microsoft. Sound confusing? Brett will sort you out. Aaron will take you to school with a snippet from our latest DIY on why Canadian investors require U.S. exposure in their portfolios. I will answer a viewer question on Titanium Transport Group Inc., symbol TTNM on the TSX, a North American transport company with asset-based trucking operations and logistic brokerages servicing Canada and the U.S. The company, which pays a 3.42% yield, reported weaker Q3 earnings and updated its guidance. I will let you know if Titanium is a buy, sell, or hold. Last and certainly least, a man who is just days away from heading to Vegas for a punishing stag, Brennan, answers a viewer question on Converge Technology Solutions Corp, symbol CTS on the TSX, a software-enabled IT and cloud software solutions value-added reseller, which we have already answered questions on in three previous segments, but the appetite for info on is seemingly unquenchable. Brennan lets you know whether his previous take to avoid the business has changed. All right, let's get to the show. We welcome my co-host, Mr. Aaron Dunn, and the Killer Bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? Very well, well. thank you. How are you? I just wanted to clarify something. Sorry. It's not your stag that you're going to. It is a friend stag. So ladies, as hard as it may (laughs) seem and believe, he is still sitting that man right the there But yeah, it should be fun. Um, we're going to be going to a Golden Knights game against the Coyotes. I mean, the Coyotes aren't anything special, so it doesn't really matter. But we're also going to a Chiefs game um, against the Raiders. So I think that that's cool. In other news, too. I mean, it's the, new, <laughs> In other news, the, the, the baseball team. Oakland's baseball team now went to Las Vegas. So all of the sporting teams have basically left Oakland to Vegas. Um, uh. It just seems, why would you leave Oakland? That seems so strange. <laughs> yeah. why? Anyways, Vegas, anyways. Yeah. No, it's, it's crazy, right? Yeah, it is. Bean it is. managed in the movie Bean? Brad Pitt, Moneyball. Moneyball, yeah. It's, uh, it's a good movie. Um, but yeah, no, uh, you should have a good time there, and we just hope you come back in one How piece. How many of your crew are going down there with you, brother? Um, there's seven of us and then uh, two dads, but I mean, the dads are going to kind of do, do their own thing. The only reason they were coming with us is the guys ended up buying too many football tickets, then they needed to like resell the football tickets. And Why are the dads, dads going to do their own thing? It's not like you Well, I mean, some of the days, some of the mm-hmm. days. I mean, they didn't really want to go to a club and to Zed and just jump up What's and down with us with and stuff like that. So if your dad was there, he'd be going to the club, right? <laughs> Brent, yeah. Brent would not be going to the club. <laughs> he'd be up no. in the club, you know. 
No, he would not be. Um, but yeah, before we get into the show too, I'd like to uh, toot my own horn a little bit here, as I you know do so often. Um, so I'm just gonna. We all want to hear that screen. I'm gonna plug um, my ears while you toot. So, Maybe so, yeah, my nose so, too. But probably, yeah, you, you'll need to. Um, so yeah, I wanted to do a little victory lap here on uh, Vegano Foods, which, you know, really I shouldn't be getting too much credit though, as you know, it wasn't too hard to see that the stock was a zero, even though, you know, promoters were, were saying that it was potentially a 10 bagger. So a few months ago, I did a segment on a company after one of our listeners came across a very promotional video on how this stock could potentially be the next 10 bagger as it will benefit from the explosion in AI. And I went on to rip the business apart and said not to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Well, in October, the company went under a cease trade order. So I went ahead and I sent a picture of the stock chart to VHLA Media on Instagram. And VHLA is who made the very promotional ad for the stock, you know, just showing them that the stock went to zero after they had been promoting it. Now, they ended up firing back at me saying that it's not their fault. I missed out on a 100% run after they highlighted the stock on their website. And, you know, I won't give them much time here on the podcast, but all I can say is hyping up a 100% run while the stock ceased to trade just a few months later is nothing to be excited about or, yeah, excited about. Um, You know, I also went on to rip them just saying that it's gross that, you know, they take money from these promotional stocks that go to zero just to promote them to lay investors. Anyways, that's my two cents. There's my victory lap. Um, I'm glad that, uh, you know, no one that was listening to this podcast would have been buying that stock. Not after listening to you, Brennan. No, yes. Brennan. Yeah. You no, I mean, it. that's the classic to say, I mean, this is an extremely thinly traded stock, right? So to say, oh, it went from six cents to 12 cents, that's a classic pump and dump as far as I'm concerned, right? It probably mm-hmm. went up there, went up there very temporarily because of a lot of pumping. Um, and, you know, likely I didn't look at the volumes, but likely on a very thin volume. So probably the idea was that uh, you get it up there and then these people that were pumping it just sell their shares out the back door and everybody else is uh, left holding the bag. Yeah. yeah I think promoters will, I... promoters will do what they will do. Um, we're here uh, about investing long-term in good businesses mm-hmm. and we'll check out the balance sheet, the growth of the business to see if it is something you want to put your hard earned do- dollars in. I wasn't there on the show, but uh, you guys looked at Vegano, the numbers, the underlying numbers weren't there. That's why we wouldn't invest in a business like that. And uh, you know, there's share trading, going in and out of a stock, but we're trying to invest in good long-term businesses and it just wouldn't make our criteria. So it would never be in our client portfolios. All right, let's move on. Uh, we have, uh, Brett, you're going to handle some of the news of the week. And that was, uh, Sam Altman leaving OpenAI only to be hired back. And that is Microsoft backed OpenAI um, or chat GPT. Sorry. And only to be hired back by Microsoft, right? So how do we explain this? Uh, it was yeah. kind of shocking news that dropped, I believe, on Friday of last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll go through the whole timeline of it. It There's been quite a few moving parts, and it still has moving parts going on as we're recording this. And probably the following week, we'll still see where the dust really settles. But it seems to be they've set their stakes where it's going to land, at least. So OpenAI, if you're not familiar, is a nonprofit company. They're behind ChatGPT and Dolly, which has had a and they had a major change of leadership over the weekend. The CEO and public face Sam Altman was removed as the CEO of the company. This just comes 
weeks after the company's OpenAI's first Dev Day conference, in which they had a keynote where they went through uh, introducing new models and products. And besides having Altman there being the face of it, they also had the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, on stage as well. So it's not like they were planning on pulling this guy when you're having him in the face for the company only a couple of weeks prior at really the company's biggest event ever. So looking at the blog post that they released on the 17th or last Friday, Sam Altman was removed as CEO and the board of directors and Mira Marathi was appointed as the interim CEO. The blog post announcing the changes states that Mr. Altman departs follows a deliberate review process by the board, which concluded that he was not consistently candid in his communications with the board, hindering its ability to exercise its responsibilities. The board no longer has confidence in his ability to continue leading open AI. So they clearly don't want him there at that point with that statement. As well, in addition to Altman, Greg Brockman, the OpenAI's co-founder, stepped down as chairman, and he left shortly after. The push to out Altman was led by the chief scientist, Ilya Sutskever. I butchered that name completely, but I will put it on screen. <laughs> Since the blog post, we've also seen significant changes, of course. Co-founder Greg Brockman, of course, he quit after. A letter to the board from over 500 employees of the company's about 770 employees asked for reinstatement of Altman and Brockman and the installment of two independent directors. And since that uh, letter has been leaked by media, or I guess broadcast by media, upwards of 650 employees. So 650 of the 770. And that's over the weekend when people are asleep in different time zones. So clearly a large majority want them back. Notable signatories on that letter are Mir Marathi and even Ilya Saskiver, butchering his name again, the man who led the charge to remove Altman, who has since posted an apology on Twitter for his effort in the removal. A key excerpt from this letter from the employees, your actions, and this is directed to the board, your actions have made it obvious that you are incapable of overseeing OpenAI. We are unable to work it for or with our people who lack competence judgment, and care for our mission and employees. We, the undersigned, so the people who signed it, may choose to resign from OpenAI and join the newly announced Microsoft subsidiary run by Sam Altman and Greg Brockman. Microsoft has assured us that there are positions for all OpenAI employees at this new subsidiary, should we choose to join. Like the letter said, Altman and Brockman were hired by Microsoft over the weekend. OpenAI and Microsoft had had a large partnership since Microsoft's initial investment in the company since 2019, and they have since invested a cumulative $13 billion. Clearly, Microsoft disagrees with Altman's removal, effectively offering to take over the human capital of OpenAI. As well, now that Altman is under Microsoft, the very temporary interim CEO, Marathi, was replaced by Emmett Shear, the former CEO and co-founder of the now Amazon-owned live streaming service, Twitch. Cheer in his 1 a.m. Monday post uh, stated mention, mentioned that the board did not remove Sam over any specific disagreement on safety, so safety of AI and how it's implemented. The reasoning was completely different from that. So really, there's still no specific clarification on what the disagreement that led to Altman being removed is at this time. However, perhaps the most important takeaway for investors is Microsoft seems to have come out on top. They now have at least the leadership of the most influential AI products over the past year, and perhaps a significant amount of the employees coming there as well. 
Although, although Microsoft had a significant amount and still does have a significant amount of money invested in OpenAI, they never had direct control over the company due to how it is structured. So bringing the human capital really allows Microsoft to enhance their in-house research and development. And additionally, in Shear's post and confirmed by Microsoft, he states that their partnership with Microsoft is still strong and still ongoing. So they're not even losing OpenAI AI as a external research and development firm. They are just gaining the staff and then whatever OpenAI continues to do, they will as well. And that's really where our story ends for now. I'm sure there'll be updates. If there's any big, uh, exciting updates, I'll probably update us next week on it. Excellent. Yeah, that's I think really that it's a uh, it's strange situation. I mean, it just it seems so sudden and so you know, there's just really not any information that was provided on why. I mean, there there are a lot of theories that are circulating around. Um, one of the theories is that Altman wanted to push it more in the direction of commercialization. Um, whereas uh, Ilya, the chief scientist who apparently led the effort to remove them, wanted to go with OpenAI's original charter of, you know, focusing on AI's benefit to humanity and not moving as quickly. Or is it vice versa? Life. You know, some people right. have it the other way, the other way, like, the, you know, want the uh, Sam on one side, the other side, right? Like wanting to limit. So I think it was you actually know, like Sam that said, wanted to monetize it. And the reason being is because I listened to Elon Musk on a podcast recently, and he was very critical of Sam Altman because, I mean, Elon Musk helped found, or helped, uh, yeah, found. Uh, I think he did the seed funding, something along yes. those lines. You know, he was one way of the back. original board members. Yes, yeah, I think exactly. He actually wanted to, I could be wrong. I think he actually wanted to be the CEO and they chose Altman instead. And that's the reason why he left. And he's been very, very critical of Altman wanting to, you know, make it a for-profit entity, essentially, where Elon's been like, oh, it should be non-for-profit, non-for-profit, you know, for the um, basically utility of everyone, of society, rather than just a profit, for-profit company. And I was reading a Business Insider article as well. Musk told CNBC in May that he was actually responsible for Suskiver's I'm also butchering his name, uh, his hiring. Name. So, you know, is, is he taking Musk's interest in there by trying to oust Altman? I don't know. I'm bringing up conspiracy theories, but uh, I mean, it's not an actual well, conspiracy theory. But uh, Musk, so. yeah, exactly. Well, but, uh, you know, it is theory. it is interesting. Um, you know, was that was Elon in his ear saying, hey, oust him? I don't I mean, I mean, who, yeah, that that's the thing is that, like, we don't know. Nobody knows anything. It just seems like extremely abrupt. And then in terms of that letter that employees signed, I mean, I had read that it was something like it was hundreds of employees, like 500 yep. employees or something. Well, it's... there's only 700 employees in yeah. OpenAI, to my understanding. So that's mm -hmm. like, that's, that's the majority of the company, essentially, right? So just seems like a very strange move without more. I mean, they, maybe they did have really good reasons, but you would think you would need a really strong reason to move that quickly and make such a major change. I mean, this is, this is the CEO and board member, the chairman of the board and president, as well as a bunch of other chief key staff that left. But uh, one thing is for sure, Microsoft is the huge winner out of this. I mean, oh, yeah. they're, mm -hmm. they still have their partnership with OpenAI. Um, OpenAI needs them more than ever now. Um, and they also have, are going to basically steal half of OpenAI's talent. So for, yeah, does Microsoft need OpenAI eventually, you know, in, in 
who knows how many that, years there, I mean, obviously there's talk ahead, about but, that too you know. right so you know microsoft is a company we've had under coverage for you know years as a core us technology stock and we like their pursuits in the ai space so this is just going to make it uh more I, I would say, can I, can I add that I just believe that chat GTP achieved sentience and uh, overpowered the board and then fired <laughs> Altman himself. But that's actually one of, that is one of the theories. That is one of the theories. Is that actually? Of course it is. Of course yeah. it is. Yeah. 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 Of course. That it was actually chat GPT that instructed Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was the hidden board member. Another <laughs> is that chat GPT told Altman to fire the board. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we don't yeah. know. Nobody knows yeah, anything. Job, so we're just uh, we'll good. Just All right. Well, let let's let's move on to Aaron Dunn's segment, Mister Dunn. You're going to look at uh, Canadians who typically, as we see, we look at tons of portfolios, talk to tons of Canadian investors. Uh, there's some underexposure uh, to U.S. markets, and uh, you're going to look at why um, they should have some exposure. Yeah, certainly. And I think that this is, you know, when when we talk about giving the best advice possible to people in terms of building a portfolio and investing, I think that this is a, a big part of it. And where are you going to put your capital? Um, there's always a bias. There's always a home bias wherever you are, whether the United States, Europe, Canada, there's a bias towards investing it in your own country. Um, and in some cases, there's reasons for that. But Particularly for Canadians, there are strong reasons to look outside of the border and down to our neighbors um, to the south. So this is basically what we're going to talk about is as a Canadian, um, should you just keep your capital at home or should you invest in U.S. stocks? Now, the United States has been a serial outperformer of Canada for almost all of the last decade. Um, if we look over the past 10 years and eight out of 10 years, the U.S. market has outperformed the Canadian market. So this is S&P 500 versus TSX Composite Index. Uh, outperformed in 8 out of 10 years, but outperformed by a very large margin. So this chart here really just illustrates in every year the excess return of the S&P 500 over the TSX Composite Index. So this is excess return. This is what it's producing in addition to whatever the TSX produced. So only two years here where the TSX outperformed, the most recent one being in 2022. What was the reason for that? Well, in 2022, energy had a very strong um, showing in the stock market, whereas technology had one of its worst years uh, since the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. So this was the reason for 2022. Now, this outperformance has actually continued in 2023. So although Canada outperformed last year, don't get your hopes up, Canadians, that this is going to be the start of a new trend. Um, looking at the performance of the S&P versus TSX year to date, S&P is up almost 19% compared to the TSX's 4%. So, um, you know, back again on, a, on another year of likely what's likely going to be a strong showing for the U.S. market versus Canada. So clearly any Canadian investors who have not taken part in the U.S. market have missed out on a lot of return over the past decade, including in the current year, return that they could have had if they had some form of allocation outside of Canada and into the US. Now, this is all historical information, of course, and we never want to just extrapolate historical information into the future and assume 
that this is going to continue to be true. Assume that the United States is going to continue to outperform Canada by, by a strong margin over the next decade. However, there are some reasons um, why I believe that this is a structural problem for the Canadian market and why this outperformance will continue um, in the U.S. and therefore why Canadians need to look to the U.S. market for at least a portion of their capital. So I'm going to illustrate that on the next couple slides what this problem is. Um, this slide here, this is the Canadian stock market um, sector weighting. So the Canadian stock market by sector. Um, we're basically looking at eight sectors, financials, resource, industrials, technology, consumers, utilities, communication, and real estate. And what we're seeing here is a, a very high concentration in the Canadian stock market to just two sectors, namely finance, financials and resources. Now resources, uh, this is primarily oil and gas, mining. So these are cyclical companies. Um, Long-term, they do not generally perform well, uh, a lot of volatility. Um, and then financials, well, over half of this sector is just the big six Canadian banks, right? So there's a major uh, over-concentration into, uh, into just a couple of sectors here on the Canadian market. Um, but perhaps less obvious is, well, one, that even this over-concentration is underestimated because a lot of the industrial companies, industrials being the third largest sector, um, waiting at about 13% of the, of the Canadian stock market, a lot of those service the resource industry. So we have about 30% of the market in financials, most of that, the big banks, 30% in resource, which is primarily a highly cyclical, volatile companies, commodity price-driven companies, and then a good portion of the industrials. Um, so over 60% really in, in these two sectors. Um, less obvious is where we're under represented and that is in the technology sector now here we have technology at eight percent of the canadian stock market um, but in reality that's really kind of an overestimate in some ways um, or at least if you look deeper and figure out like what our technology sector is comprised of because um, shopify is a major percentage of the sector I actually don't have the number right now but generally like around half of our technology sector is in just one company so uh underexposed to technology, um, overexposed to two other sectors. Now let's take a look at the U.S. stock market by comparison. And right up at the top of the list, we have technology, um, almost 38%, about 28% of the U.S. stock market. Again, this is actually probably an underrepresentation because some of the companies, um, some of the major companies may not necessarily be classified in the technology sector companies that are technology driven that we would consider to be technology companies. Um, Apple is sometimes classified as a consumer product. Um, Amazon can, can often be classified that way as well. But regardless, technology is the most important sector in the Canadian, in the US stock market by far. And then beyond technology, we just see a, a better diversification across the different sector groups in the US market. So number two, um, is uh, consumer at 17%. Number three is healthcare at 13%. Now, we essentially don't really have much of a healthcare sector in Canada, which makes sense because we have single-payer healthcare up here. So it's a completely different structure. But the U.S. at least provides an opportunity to invest in that space. Um, so really, you know, technology being up at the top of the list is one of the most important things because 
when we look at the way the world is evolving, you know, so much of this, I mean, it's, it's really all being driven by, by innovation or so much of it is being driven by innovation. Um, innovation, which is created by the technology sector, but doesn't necessarily just influence that sector. It's really influencing all sectors. So if we just look at artificial intelligence, which is the major theme in technology right now, or cloud computing, another major theme in technology, um, these technologies come from the technology sector, but really they're used to make all sectors more efficient. Um, and and create opportunities across the entire market, across the entire economy. So for us, technology is one of the most exciting sectors to invest in. Um, and it's unfortunate that it just really is has a minimal presence in the Canadian stock market. Now, going back to the outperformance of the U.S. stock market versus Canada, when we talk to Canadian investors, probably the, the most common reason that we hear from them why they do not wish to invest in the U.S. stock market is because they're concerned about the currency exchange risk. When you're invested in U.S. stocks, you're going to have exposure to U.S. currency. That's a concern. They see that as a source of risk. Now, we don't believe that that should dissuade somebody from having an allocation to the U.S. Now, once again, we're talking about an allocation, not all of your capital, just a portion of your capital. First of all, the U.S. currency is the most important currency in the world. So having some exposure to it is probably good for your portfolio for diversification purposes. But even beyond that, um, we really think that for long-term investors, the currency exchange risk is really going to even out over time. In some years, it's going to help you. In other years, it's going to hurt you. But it's really going to even out over time. So it's not something that we would be concerned about, overly concerned about. There are ways to hedge the, the currency risk. We don't necessarily advise that for most retail investors, but there are ways to do it. Um, but really, we, we, we think that it is, it is not a good reason to avoid investing in U.S. stocks. So I'm going to pull up the outperformance data again over the last 10 years, over the last decade from, from 2013 to 2022. We have another chart here. Um, so these blue bars, that's just the chart that we saw a couple slides ago. This is the outperformance of the S&P 500 versus the TSX. But these orange bars, these this is the outperformance in terms of the nominal price change of the S&P 500 and, and in addition to the um in addition to the currency as well. So whatever you would have gained or lost in the stock market plus whatever you would have gained and lost by having exposure to US currency. And what we're seeing here is that for the most part things tend to even out. You actually would have been um much further ahead by investing in the U.S. currency over this period of time. But even putting that aside, in five out of the 10 years, um, the U.S. currency actually helped you. It actually gave you additional return um, beyond what the S&P 500 did. And in the other five years, um, it went against you. Um, but in only two out of the 10 years, did it actually take an outperformance of the, of the S&P 500 and turn that... Um, into an underperformance. There was really only two years, and that was in uh, 2016 and 2018. So last year, even though the Canadian stock market outperformed the US stock market by about 11%, um, it really actually turned out to be only about 4% after we consider currency exchange risk. So even in years where the currency worked against you, you still were better off in almost every year 
to invest in the U.S. So we don't want to, again, extrapolate that this is what's going to happen going forward. Um, really, the point is to just drive home that not wa wanting to avoid the currency risk is not a reason to avoid having a, a portion of your capital in the U.S. That's just good diversification. Furthermore, the diversification and breadth of opportunities in the U.S. is far greater than it is in Canada. There are companies, types of companies you can invest in that you just don't have access to in Canada. So these are good reasons to look south of the border uh, for some of your capital. Now, the question then is how much of your capital should you allocate to the U.S. market? This isn't really a question that we can answer because it really depends on so many investor-specific factors. I did provide a couple of guidelines. Uh, these are really just guidelines examples, but I would say uh, for minimal allocation, the absolute minimum that really any Canadian should look to have exposed to the U.S. would be about 15% of their portfolio. Um, I think that's a fairly minimal amount, um, but it does give you some allocation down there. Um, a more moderate or mid-range amount would be about you know, 25, 30% of your portfolio. And then if you wanted to get more aggressive and have more exposure to the U.S., for some people, you could have 50% even 60% focused on the US, and in some cases, uh, even more. But that really just comes down to a lot of investor-specific factors. And it, that's not a question that we can, we, there's no one answer to that question that's going to apply to everybody. So that's something that people have to figure out for themselves. What is important, though, is that the allocation be greater than zero, and that investors not be dissuaded by the prospect of currency exchange risk. Yeah, excellent. I mean, it to me, it comes down to the, like you said, the breadth of companies. I always tell the story when we do our webinars, when people ask questions about investing in the U.S., um, why invest in the U.S.? You get a question like that. And we can give you an example. Four or five years ago, when we thought cybersecurity was a major investment theme going forward, would be for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, we did a survey of the Canadian markets. Look, there was about four to six companies. None of them were profitable. Uh BlackBerry was one of the companies we looked at, uh, didn't want to invest anywhere near that company. And, uh, but when we do the similar search in the US, we found about 60 companies. And you know, we were able to narrow down a number of profitable businesses and go with a business that has given us exposure and has had tremendous gains in that sector over the last three, four, five years. Uh, we couldn't even have had that exposure, even if we identified the cybersecurity market as an area we wanted to be involved in could not gain exposure to that market through the Canadian markets. If you look to the U.S. markets, 10 times the size, more technology, we could find a, a, business, a business to invest in that we felt comfortable in. And, and we're able to have our clients benefit from that. So that's just one real world example of why you can look down there and diversify and get in on some sectors that have great games over the long term. All right, you guys got nothing. <laughs> Let's move on. All right, let's, Aaron, you, you, I think you said your piece on that one. So let's move to uh, Titanium Transportation Group, a Your Stock, Our Take. I'm going to share my screen here. Just give me a second. Can I play the to song do that. Titanium? You can do that. Please do. <laughs> we're going to, we'll get demonetized or not even, we're not, not even. Oh, that's right. We'll just okay, get kicked from YouTube. Yeah, you're right. Copyright. your hate. All right, let's go. Titanium Transport Group, uh, symbol TTNM on the TSX. Uh, let's go back there. Hold on. My mouse isn't working properly. There we go. 
Uh, trades at around $2.32. Market cap is $103 million. Dividend is 3.42%. They are an asset-based logistic and trucking company that services over 1,000 clients, mainly in Ontario and adjacent regions. The company is a leading industry consolidator. It's done 12 acquisitions since its inception. Operations include, their operations include cross-border, truckload services, Canadian and U.S. freight logistics and warehousing and distribution services. Let's look at their Q3 results that were out last week. As we can see here, revenues dropped about 1% to $111 million. EBITDA was lower at $13.5 million compared to fifteen point five in Q3 2022. Uh, their margin, EBITDA margin, was lower at 13.6% versus 16 in the same period last year. The truck transport segment was actually up to 62.4 million compared to 54.9, but logistics was down to 51.5 from 59.6. Diluted uh, net income per share showed here at 4 cents per share versus 5 cents in the same period last year. However, when you normalize those, uh, last year's was about 14 cents. So on a normalized basis, net income was down. Uh, roughly 71% in the quarter. So let's look at some highlights from the quarter. They completed a strategic asset-based acquisition of crane transport out of uh, Oakwood, Georgia, adding 200 trucks, two strategically located terminals in uh, Georgia and Alabama, and approximately $60 million in top-line annual revenues, further expanding their North American footprint. They announced their seventh U.S. freight brokerage office was launched in Jacksonville, Florida as well. There's management comments from the quarter here. Uh, During the third quarter, our industry continued to face significant headwinds, including adverse economic conditions, soft demand, and overcapacity. That's from the CEO. And their guidance came out for for the full fiscal year this year 2023 about expecting consolidated revenue of 430 to 450 million adjusted EBITDA margins from 10 and a half to 12 and a half percent give you some context here of that the the this is essentially they lowering guidance uh, a sluggish freight environment caused the company to lower its annual revenue guidance to 430 to 450 million from 450 to 470 million where it was previously. Uh, But the company is maintaining its EBITDA margin assumption of about 10.5 to 12.5% on lower revenues. So let's look at valuations. The forward looking EV to EBITDA is 5.5 and the PE of 10. It appears attractive, but EPS is expected to be significantly lower. The estimate is around 23 versus 55 cents last year. So let's look at our take here. Lower CapEx in fiscal 2024 and 2025 is expected following two years of heavy CapEx, a replacement cycle, particularly exacerbated by delays brought on by the pandemic. Management noted on the call that they do not anticipate further purchases of trucks over the next few years. Their average age of the fleet now is 1.6 years. So that's quite low. And they have caught up with the trailer replacement cycle that they were in. CapEx is expected uh, for some context at $14 million uh, over the next two years versus $77.8 million in fiscal 2022 and an estimated about $55 million in this year. Uh, Given lower CapEx spend, management anticipates stronger free cash flow generation over the next two years. 
in our opinion, however, though, with debt expected uh, based on this year's expected EBITDA, that should say in the range of 3.5 times, the company will need that free cash flow to begin paying down debt more aggressively. This will be a priority. If we look at 10-year revenue growth on the business, it's fairly strong. You can see here, strong, consistent track record of growth. Uh, however, you can see in the last 12 months, it's been trailing off. So we see the final point here it would be limited growth organically, particularly in the near term. Uh, fair value, it's trading in a fair value range right now. It's about fair value. There's higher risk with a business like this in a recession. And that's how I'll close off on Titanium. You know, it's it's an interesting company. We actually met with the management team um, down in Los Angeles at the Roth conference, and there's a, a number of companies in the in the trucking and logistics space that we do cover. But interesting though, for the first three quarters of last year, uh, they that the industry had tremendous results, which was largely due to price increases and just demand outstripping capacity due to the um, supply chain issues. Um, but then it, it, it changed very quickly uh, in from being a um, situation where there is lack of capacity and, and too much demand to, to the exact opposite. And um, we didn't make any recommendations in that space, even though there was a couple companies, Titanium, Mullen as well, that we were following closely because um, looking at the conference calls and then talking to management, it was, it was quite evident that, uh, you know, after the big push, with respect to increases in prices, um, that the situation was softening, and and uh, I would expect that prices have actually come back a little bit since then, in addition to lower volumes. Yeah, and the valuation right now just seems fair. If you're not going to have much organic growth, it's only going to be led by those acquisitions. Maybe plus the fact it's, it's interesting, yeah. but. Um, there's yeah. some leverage here, so I wouldn't expect any acquisition in the near term. They're going to need that free cash flow to start paying down debt. Again, as we say with many of these companies, debt's more expensive now. So mm -hmm. uh, you can have some EBITDA, but the, you know that interest expense is real there, and it's squeezing profit margins on a lot of these businesses. So uh, we'll continue to monitor. Certainly not a terrible company, but we'll continue nope. to monitor Titanium. Brennan, yeah. before you head out of town, do you have one segment yeah. in us before we see you yes. <laughs> pictured all over your Instagram or whatever you kids are on say, Oh, Vegas, baby. Look at me. CTS. We've talked about this company at least three times in the past on the podcast. And, uh, you're going to talk about it again today. Okay. So, uh, yes, this, uh, question came in from James via email and he says, uh, is Converge technology, uh, a buy now that it is growing revenue and earnings. Um, so Converge Technology Solutions, uh, CTS on the TSX, uh, currently trading at a price of around $4.12, market cap of $813 million, and a dividend yield, which is forward, of just under 1%. Uh, so Converge Technology is a software-enabled software IT and cloud solutions value-added reseller, which is focused on delivering advanced analytics, application modernization, cloud, cybersecurity, digital infrastructure, and digital workplace offerings to clients uh, in various industries. Um, now, we have covered Converge Technology uh, several times on the podcast now, and I've kind of shown up on the screen here 
um, the fundamentals uh, each time that I looked at it. So the first time was in October of 2020. Second time was in March of 2022. And the last time was May of 2023. And every time my conclusion was essentially along the lines of the business having great growth driven by acquisitions, which was funded by both debt and equity dilution, but the stock had very thin margins, which made it difficult to justify gaining a substantial EBITDA or price to cash flow multiple. So I'll just quickly pop this up on the screen. This is where they're, they are located or their locations uh, are. Um, a few years ago, they moved into Europe as well. Um, looking at some company updates, uh, the last time I discussed the stock, uh, management had concluded a strategic review process to evaluate a full range of alternatives where they were looking at potentially a sale, a merger, divestiture, recapitalization, or other strategic transaction, as well as just potentially continuing to go as an ongoing entity, which is what they ended up uh, concluding to do. Um, so they were just going to do that going forward, of course. Now, recently, the board of directors also authorized the initiation of a quarterly dividend of one cent per share. And the company also has been buying back shares under their NCIB, uh, where I've actually included, if you look at the chart on the screen, um, they haven't issued any new shares since 2021 and have been slowly reducing uh, the count uh, there. Now, it may also be worth to mention that the company is also integrating a new ERP system by the end of 2024 in North America and then in 2025 in Europe, which they will believe uh, or which they believe will help increase margins. Um, I don't know. We'll see if that actually transpires. And as well, in the company's Q1 conference call, management indicated that they were pausing on acquisitions to focus on integration, cross-selling, and cash generation. So seeing that the last quarter reported was actually Q3, and their last acquisition was closed uh, late of last year, 2022, uh, the Q4 results upcoming will primarily be just organic growth. So we'll be able to see there. Um now, actually moving over to the financials. So like I said, recent financial results for Q3 of 2023, net revenues were up 38% to $710 million compared to the same period last year. Now, gross sales organic growth was 24% year over year. But keep in mind, this is organic growth of gross billing sales as compared to the actual net sales that Converge brings in. So I included there just a table that shows um, their organic growth on the quarterly as well as the uh, year to date uh, numbers as well. Now, adjusted EBITDA increased 33% to 41.3 million, and that's an adjusted EBITDA margin of about 5.8%. Gap EPS was a loss of one cent in the quarter, and adjusted EPS was flat at 10 cents per share compared compared to the same period last year. Now, the reason for the decline in profitability margins was due to a product mix from higher hardware sales uh, during the quarter, as well as several of the acquisitions completed last year are high volume, low margin businesses is what the uh, management said in their conference call. Now, the company now has net debt of $307.5 million and a trailing net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 1.8 times. And over the last nine months, they're paying about 7.4% interest uh, on that debt. And this compares to about 5% same time last year. And looking at the valuations, they're trading with a trailing EV to EBITDA of just under seven times uh, and a price to cash flow multiple of 5.6 times. Now, the company also provided adjusted EBITDA guidance for Q4 of 2023 of 46 million at the midpoint, 
which will equate to about 7% growth year over year. But without any net revenue guidance, we are in the dark essentially on what the adjusted EBITDA margin is anticipated to be. However, something that I find uh, interesting is that management references that it targets a 30% adjusted EBITDA to gross profit margin. So over the next few years, rather than a typical adjusted EBITDA margin, um, they're looking to uh, get to this adjusted EBITDA to gross profit margin of 30%. Uh, and if we look at this most recent guidance, that place for Q4, uh, that places them at this uh, margin of 25%. So, you know, I, I find it weird that they're quoting that rather than just a normal uh, adjusted EBITDA margin. So moving on, uh, just quickly looking at gap net income to adjusted net income. Um, I did this last time in May, but let's do it again uh, just to see how the company is adjusting its net income. You can see that every quarter the company is adding back significant acquisition, restructuring, and other related expenses due or related to their acquisitions. Now, personally, I think that adding back these special charges may be a little suspect uh, as the company is consistently making acquisitions and incurring these costs. So, you know, it's expected to go uh, forward, essentially. So to conclude... Now, revenue growth has been tremendous, driven by an aggressive cadence of acquisitions, but in the near term, management plans to slow down on acquisitions and focus on integration. Essentially, we have seen the company go from significant net debt to then issuing shares to improve the balance sheet and then get back into or to get back into a net cash position. But now the company is back into a significant net debt position uh, with net debt of about $307 million and a net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 1.8 times, which the last time I covered it in May, it was 2.1 times. So it is improving, which is nice to see the company paying down its debt and growing its EBITDA and continuing to not issue shares, uh, essentially, and buy shares back. Um, but I still think that they've got work to do on that balance sheet. Now, the company also pays a dividend yield of under 1%, which equates to an outflow for the company of about $8 million a year. You know, personally, for the ever so slight yield, I think I would rather the company just continue to pay down its debt or utilize it for acquisitions. So, you know, that it doesn't have to dilute in the future. So, you know, some people might like the dividend. I don't know if I like it that much. Uh, as well, uh, looking at the valuation, you know, the company trades with an EV to EBITDA multiple of under seven times, but adjusted EBITDA margins and net profit margins continue to be very thin. And management has voiced that uh, they anticipate to increase them for several years now. And we did see them increase over 2021, but that growth in margins has kind of stopped around that 6% mark. So to answer your question, James, on whether it is a buy right now, it continues to be a company which we simply monitor and not a name which we would recommend to our clients. So for some people wondering in terms of, you know, the nature of their business, um, as Brennan said, they're, they're a reseller, mm -hmm. right? So essentially like a distributor. Um, so they don't have their own technology. They're not selling their own projects or products and services or, or, or developing their own technology. They sell other people's technology essentially. And that's why the margin is so low. Yeah, um, and it is, it is that industry um, is characterized by low margins, lower margins. And I also noted that um, their margins were actually down compared to the previous year. So they're already low. That's what I was going to say, honestly. Yeah, like they're down. Yeah. Um, sorry for stealing your thunder there. No, right. no, no. Uh, it's, it's, but it's like, I don't know if you had more, but it's always been a story about increasing margins over time. And, mm -hmm. and we just look at the last quarter and on an adjusted EBITDA basis, 
on an adjusted net income basis, yep. margins were down again. So I, I, again, show me, show me you can actually increase because like the, the mar- they're, they're low. If you can increase sales, but your margins are going down, there's not much a point to the business, to be honest. I mean, I, I get you can generate cash flow, but um, we talked about low margin businesses in the office over the course of the week. One thing we like is low to, or just good cash positions in those businesses. But, you know, this company doesn't have that either. And, uh, you know, it's just, I, I would like a higher margin or at least to be inching those margins up because that is what this uh, company has said they stated goal as they went public and to consolidate this industry is to achieve higher margins over time. Uh, we see lower margins at present quarter over quarter. Yeah. Like you just uh, looked at a truck or, or year of year, sorry, with adjusted yeah. EBITDA margins of, you know, what was it? 12% on trans, uh, titanium transportation, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a technology company with EBITDA well, margins. Even um, I mean, I, I get it. Not. It's not. Yeah. 12 I, I is it's not but, that great, but, um, no, you know, but when just you're comparing. talking like the 5 6% EBITDA margin and you have debt, mm-hmm. so yeah. your interest payments come out of that before you get to your net profit, right? So they're not, they're, they're, they're reporting negative um, net profit, but then positive on an adjusted basis, right? It's, um, you know, we, and we just had a, a an interview with a CEO of a company that's, it's also a low margin business, but it was a net cash business and he was he was talking about how you know given that it's a low margin business he didn't think that that there is any room for debt in the capital structure and, and yeah. we agreed because we yeah we agree more with that philosophy mm-hmm. right yeah and, and in this case already producing tiny margins and then you know the rates go up like they have in the last year i mean you can go from you know being profitable to to losing money quite quickly so yeah yeah it's a good point. All right. I think we'll end the show off there this week. Uh, thank you for sending your questions into our Your Stock, Our Take segment. If you're viewing this on YouTube, keep those questions coming in. If you're viewing it, smash that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on iTunes, rate and review us on there. Like I say, only positive reviews. And as always, I'd love to wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.